I'd love to hear one thing that you fucking love about being non-binary and gender non-conforming. I get to wake up every day and I get to think to myself, this is who I am and I am living truly as authentically as myself despite others trying to suppress me. My existence is expansive, like I truly can't be contained in any boxes that anyone else creates. I'm Ruby Rare. I'm a sex educator and author, and this is In Touch, a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex, relationships, and our bodies. In this podcast, we're talking about sex in an explicit and honest way. You might hear the occasional bit of strong language. In this episode in particular, there will be mention of transphobia. It's also worth mentioning that I'm a survivor of sexual assault, so this is something I'll be mentioning throughout the series. Please be kind to yourself while listening. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or are looking for support for any of the themes discussed, check the episode description for resources and helplines. So this episode is a really personal one. It's something that I've been thinking about in my life for a while, but this episode marks me starting to talk about it publicly. Gender nonconformity is what it says on the tin, not conforming to prescribed gender roles in the way we're all expected to act, speak, dress, groom, and conduct ourselves based upon our assigned sex at birth. Anything from that point on is really individual. No two people are going to experience gender nonconformity in the same way. It feels like a term that's even broader than non-monogamy, although we'll be using both throughout this episode. This is something that's been in my life for a long time. When I worked as an educator at Brooke, the UK's leading sexual health charity, I ran LGBTQ professional trainings. One of the topics that needed the most expanding and exploring was gender. Because we grew up in what I'd call an aggressively gendered world. Babies are fitted into categories determined by genitals before they're even born, which sets all of us up to stay within certain boxes for the rest of our lives. Research by the Fawcett Society found that by the age of two, children are aware of gender, and as early as six, children associate intelligence with being a man and niceness with being a woman. So it's no surprise that we all carry so much gendered baggage. I'm definitely a product of this. From being discouraged to pursue subjects like maths and science, to an early obsession with princesses. Although, to be fair, Mulan was always my favourite, and she's the ultimate gender nonconformity icon. My childhood and adolescence was defined by being a girl. But as you'll come to see throughout this episode, it's all getting thrown up in the air for me right now. The book that's shaped my understanding of gender the most is Life Isn't Binary, by Meg John Barker and Alex Ian Taffy. It looks at the binary spectrums of gender, sexuality, relationships, and even emotions, and deconstructs them. I spoke to Meg John to get a better understanding of what gender actually means. Gender is our sense of whether we're a man or a woman or non-binary. It's that sense of our gender, that sense of our masculinity or femininity or androgyny or how we experience ourselves in relation to this thing called gender. But it's complex because in different cultures, people have really different understandings of gender. So, of course, it's like us in relation to the culture and what it says those things are and whether that fits us or not. And that's why we also have this concept of cisgender or transgender, which is whether you fit 
that gender that you were assigned at birth when people said it's a boy, it's a girl. If people do kind of remain in that gender, they're called cisgender. If they don't, they're called transgender. And then under cisgender, there's men and women. And then under transgender, there's trans men and trans women, but there's also non-binary people. Not all non-binary people identify as also being trans, but we could say broadly speaking under that umbrella because of being people whose gender has changed from the one they were assigned at birth. But I suppose what I would say is also underneath each of those umbrellas of cisgender man, cisgender woman, trans man, trans woman, non-binary, there's just this huge spectrum of identities and expressions and experiences. You know, even under like cisgender man, we know there's just a load of different ways of doing masculinity. And what's the difference between sex and gender? The way people tend to see it is that sex is the biological bit and gender is the more social bit or the more how we experience ourselves. But actually, it's a lot more complex than that, (laughs) Um, because, first of all, sex is really diverse. So we know from intersex activism that there are actually a number of different what we might call biological sexes. And there's the sort of chromosomes as to whether you're XX, XY or something else. But there's also what level of circulating hormones you have in your body. There's also your kind of sex characteristics. There's the way your brain's wired up. But then as soon as we start operating in the world, we get lots of messages about what's appropriate for somebody with our body. And those become part of our physiology as well, because the ways our bodies move and the ways our brains wire up are very different. My main message is it's really impossible to separate out sex and gender. I call it biopsychosocial. It's like it's our bodies in interaction with our experiences, in interaction with the culture, the world around us. I've been learning about this and letting it simmer in my brain for a few years now. But last summer, something pretty incredible happened. Because it turns out, I'm not the only one in my family who's going through this. I'm Maya and I'm your sister. And there's a a little gender crisis going on with these sisters. Yeah, it's been brewing and it's here. It's here. (laughs) Maya is my favourite person in the entire world. We're three years apart and have always been close, but grew even closer after we both came out as queer. My therapist told me I talk about Maya as if we're soulmates and they're not wrong. What is your relationship with your gender? What's going on? I kind of came to terms with queerness and how I felt about that. And then suddenly the issue of gender reared its head as well. We've been told that we're women and for a while, like, that's cool. And then suddenly when you actually start opening things up and thinking about things, questioning things, if you told me I wasn't, I'd also be like, all right. (laughs) Something switching my head of realising that it's not like man, woman, non-binary. It's like, no, 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 non-binary isn't a third gender. Non-binary is going, what the fuck are you doing over there? I don't want to be at that party. I want to be at this party. Three months ago, I shaved your head. I didn't expect it to change my brain. (laughs) (laughs) But can you talk about that a little bit and like how that's felt and what that change has been like for you. So I never really thought of hair as being a very important thing to me. And then the amount of hair getting drastically smaller, (laughs) like really, really shifted a lot of stuff. It's a weird thing because your, your gender and your gender expression are your own thing. But obviously so much of that is reflected back on you of how other people perceive you. Mm -hmm. And it's been really fun and nice to play around. This is the most you 
I feel like you've outwardly presented as ever. Me too. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> and the gender stuff is kind of happening organically. You're Maya. Yeah. And your gender is less important than just like this little wonderful being yeah. that you are. <laughs> Both Maya and I are at the start of these journeys with gender. So I wanted to chat to someone who's been embedded in this community for a little longer. Prashita is a writer and community organiser, and I spoke to them about this process of exploring and settling into gender nonconformity. The idea of being a woman, the kind of like comfort of womanhood, it kind of like been a part of my life. It sort of kept me warm and made me feel like I had somewhere to belong, but actually... I didn't ever feel like that fit, right? Like socks that are comfortable and fuzzy, but there's just like a hole in them and you keep putting your toe through it and it's really annoying, but you're like, well, they're nice fuzzy socks. So I'm going to keep wearing them. But actually that hole is like really annoying. It starts getting bigger. All of that kind of sums up this like idea for me of womanhood being this thing that was thrust upon me and I was expected to claim it and sit in my power in it and all of that but actually it just didn't ever feel comfortable it didn't ever feel like it fit what was within and over the past year it just became more and more clear to me that they them pronouns just felt more right being exposed more to people coming out as who they are can only ever be a good thing in helping all of us understand ourselves better While gender identity can't be changed by external factors, it can evolve over time. And you can't be what you can't see. I've already experienced this through my sexuality. It took me until my early 20s to come out as bi because there were so few bi role models in my life. And this process of looking at my gender is following a very similar pattern because until recently, there was so little visibility of gender nonconformity. My own exploration has been helped by the fact that my lovely partner, Alex, is non-binary. We've been through this journey together with their gender identity, and I've learned a lot from supporting them. Androgyny was never much of an option for me. I'm balding. I look much better with a beard than without a beard. So the way I often put it is, rather than going for kind of like genderless, where someone's like not sure what gender you are or removing these like gender signifiers, it's just like adding as much on as possible. So, and just a big mishmash of loads of stuff. So like rather than genderless being kind of genderful. When Alex and I first started talking about this concept of being genderful, it was such a turning point for me because a lot of the depictions we see of non-binary or gender non-conforming people tend to fit into a very specific androgynous look. And my body and personal style looks really different to that. I'm an excessive person. And I want my relationship with gender to match that, like a plate piled high at a buffet, full of a mismatch of delicious treats. Alex came into their gender while we were dating, so it was something we kind of did as a team. You changed your pronouns mm. in the first like six months of us being together. That was a big shift in our relationship in some ways. You were the same person after that, but in a way, it just formalised like this person who I'd met and fallen in love with as a result of that, I've had lots of conversations with my family and friends about non-binaryness. And then suddenly I'm like, oh shit, how much do I fit in that as well? When we started having those conversations, did that surprise you? 
I guess it wasn't that surprising. I always think of like pronouns and like how you identify and all of that sort of stuff as just signals to other people so that they know where you're at before they really get to know you and know where to like, we, we all put in each other in little boxes all the time. And it's just more for that. Like I already know who you are. And even though I know you really well, like you changing your pronouns, like definitely like reshapes that in some way. But also it doesn't, it's also just like, it's confirming something rather than being prescriptive. When I first started feeling drawn to gender nonconformity and seeing myself within it, my initial thought was, hang on, do I need to get a mullet? And I felt some pressure to dress in a less femme and flamboyant way. Like there needed to be some grand external change to validate the internal way I was feeling. But actually, fuck that. Maybe these things will evolve over time, though I personally just don't think I have the face to pull off a mullet. But it was a huge relief realising I don't have to change anything external to signal how I feel on the inside. I like that from the beginning of our relationship, we just put each other in our phones as husband and wife. I'm the husband and you're the wife. Mm -hmm. And you're still down in my phone as Alex's wife. It's because there wasn't that many, that many good words for the person you're in a relationship with. I think a lot of people struggle with that, with boyfriend, girlfriend, partner. Partner's I, fine, but it... I think of partner as like a cowboy. <laughs> like I mean, cow- I'm, that makes it sound so much like better pa- now. Maybe partner. I was like companion. I think companion's like two people who hate each other who are on a cruise. The reason why I like companion is that it means companion. It's like French. It's the person you sat next next to at a feast and it was the person you shared your bread with. Oh. Bread sharer. Whenever I say companion, that's always what I'm thinking of and I forget that that's not like what everyone, that's not what's... I mean, that's accurate. We eat a lot of bread together. I wanted to chat to another couple about how gender exploration fits into their dynamic. Mark Anthony and Lily Snatchdragon are both drag performers. You'll hear Mark's voice first, followed by Lily's. When I first started being a drag king, and I think it's true of a lot of drag kings, I didn't think it was going to be, but it turned into a way for me to explore my own natural gender expression. There's something about doing it on stage and there's this element in your brain that's like, it can all just be a joke, it doesn't have to be real. And that kind of takes the pressure off you a little bit. I think there's something huge about starting to perform that way in your everyday life that feels really terrifying because I know for me I spent my entire life trying to perform as feminine or a woman or how I was how I perceived I was meant to be or told I was meant to be and then it never felt natural so on stage it wasn't necessarily that I was performing something that wasn't myself it was just I was being myself but it was the first time I I kind of could completely relax and see what that was And then that instantly just carried over to my everyday life because it was like, well, this could have been so easy the whole time. Why have I been trying so hard to do all this stuff where actually if I just relax, this is what comes out of me. So when I first started drag, that was about nine years ago, I was very naive and probably very ignorant in my understanding of what gender was or is. It was very black and white for me because I was still very much in denial about my own queer identity as well and where I fitted in and where I was meant to fit in and how I was meant to be. Doing drag I think just allowed me to play with a lot of things and it did very much allow me to find myself and who I am. Coming from a very suppressive background, ideas on what a quote woman 
should be and how they're meant to behave, especially as an Asian woman and all of these list of stereotypes that kind of come with that. I played all of them because that's how I thought I was meant to be. And that was my understanding of what a cis woman was. <laughs> I'm still learning and my mind is still being very opened. I'm unlearning a lot of things that have been cemented into my brain for a very, very, very long time. So if anyone says, well, I'm like nearly 40 and I don't know, I can't, that's just who I am. It's lies because I'm nearly 40 and I'm unlearning all these things. We're all learning and evolving, constantly. I'm a massive believer in the power of intergenerational education. It's not about certain age brackets or generations getting something or not. This isn't about wokeness. It's about making a commitment to hold your values firmly, but tenderly, and not doubling down on your beliefs when someone comes along that might challenge them. I feel very plugged into these conversations right now, and I'm explaining things like gender-neutral pronouns to my parents and their peers. But it's worth remembering that in 30 or 40 years' time, I'm going to be in that role, with someone younger than me explaining newer ways of thinking. And it's up to all of us to bear that in mind as we approach these conversations with kindness, openness and patience. What we're seeing is a lot of polarising, you know, of sort of bad older generation, good younger generation or vice versa. And it's really unhelpful. Then we see often an older generation being quite resistant to change because it's like, oh no, you know, we passed on all this non-consensual sex stuff and now look, me, me too is saying that was not okay. Or we passed on these norms about being masculine or feminine and now people are saying these were really bad for them. You know, even our own kids are saying that maybe. You can understand why people kind of want to shut down, not hear it. So it's like, how do we have those intergenerational conversations? We need to make space for fear, for sadness, for grief, all of the feelings that this stuff brings up, again, safely enough that people can have those feelings and adapt to the changes. It's so essential to find spaces that are affirming and celebratory. It's about building up an armour of love and strength which allows you to go out into the world and face some of the spaces that aren't going to be so easy. Because gender nonconformity is still so misunderstood, some environments can be harder to navigate than others. Rufai is an intimacy coordinator, filmmaker and performer, and I asked them about how they've navigated their gender expression in professional environments. So when I did kind of start using they, them pronouns and identifying as non-binary, I still feel there was a separation between my personal life and like my work life. Being involved in film, working as an electrician or as a light and designer, I didn't know where to start to kind of have those kind of conversations. But then also my experience being in sex work and the predominant roles that people were casting me for was, you know, as a black man then that also kind of had an impact on like okay well they want this very particular identity there was a lot of I guess performing or playing into some kind of stereotypes of black masculinity and stuff like that for maybe for work because there was always the fear of like okay well if I don't play into that then maybe I lose out on work and with film work do I then become a target of macho sometimes toxic masculinity do I then become a target of abuse Gender non-conforming people may change their name or pronouns, change the way they present and dress, or explore hormone therapy or surgery, which would help them align with their gender identity. 
Though it's worth noting, this is all down to personal preference, and none of this is necessary in terms of proving who you are. While people changing their pronouns is increasingly common in my queer community, it's still very new for lots of people. It's not about never making a mistake. I still slip up on my loved one's pronouns every once in a while. But it's your attitude and commitment to listen to and honour people's gender that's important. Over the past year, I've been exploring how using they-them pronouns feels for me. There's something broad and expansive about it that feels exciting and comforting at the same time. I'm not fully saying goodbye to she, her pronouns, but it feels good to introduce another set of pronouns into the mix. It signifies that my gender goes beyond my biological sex and how I was socialised. But it hasn't been easy. Although I know this is bullshit and I would never think it about someone else, there's still this voice in me that's saying, changing my pronouns is making a big fuss over nothing. This speaks to being raised as a woman in itself. I've been taught to be small and polite and not make a fuss. And this is about going against the grain and making a change for myself. As a gender non-conforming person, like with many marginalised aspects of identity, you're often expected to be the spokesperson, ready to educate at all times. Rufai and I spoke about how draining that can be. Having to have these kind of conversations and why can't sometimes it just be that, you know, you just say something and that's it. And if someone wants to find out more, maybe you might be in the space to kind of provide that more information. But most of the time you might not be like you might be at work and you're trying to get something done. I can't be having a conversation about, you know, <laughs> what you think about gender and how you might disagree or whatever and stuff like that. There's a lot of resources out there. I've been exploring this from a very UK-centred perspective, as that's where I grew up and still live. But where we're raised can also impact how we feel about this stuff, and it differs from place to place. It's easy to think of queerness in all its forms as a fairly recent phenomenon, but these identities have been around for as long as we have. But because most cultures across the world have been dominated by a white cisgendered lens, queer histories have been silenced and forgotten. I'm Indian and... You know, even just from my own understanding of my heritage, queerness and freedom of self-expression was something that was celebrated and uplifted in non-European cultures, in post-colonial cultures. It was perceived as like a simple aspect, like simply an, like another aspect of human nature. In Mughal India or, you know, pre-colonial India, People would get married for legal reasons, for cultural reasons, but actually it was not always correlated with sexuality and romance. Gender expression was freely celebrated. Even today, like, despite the fact that these colonial laws that kind of, you know, banned homosexuality, etc., there's a lot of representations within the temples and within art, within poetry, from 11th, 12th century, 10th century, of a lot of depictions of people who were very gender fluid and also had same-sex interactions and, and loves and romances. So within this like shattered remains of that time, there are fragments that remain that still show that pre-Victorian, pre-colonial rule, gender and sexuality were just freely accepted and loved and were just seen as part of human nature. And it's also seen in the gods, you know, there's in like mythology. 
Like I grew up dressing idols of Lord Krishna in dresses on like his birthday with my grandma in India. And and now what I guess people would perceive as gender non-conforming, but you know, all the, the men wore dresses. It was beautiful and glamorous. So what changed? Well, for me, it all started with visibility. I didn't hear the word non-binary until my early 20s. And though there are still very few gender non-conforming people in the public eye, slowly but surely, things are changing. When I went to Trans Pride in London, it was the first time I'd been around so many gender non-conforming people outside of a club setting. Being amongst a crowd that was marching to Parliament Square, protesting for the rights of all trans people, was the first time I'd grasped just how many glorious trans and gender non-conforming people and allies there are in the UK. But with more visibility also comes more criticism. There's been a staggering 400% increase in the coverage of trans issues in UK newspapers over the past decade, according to new research commissioned by the primary press regulator. And sadly, so much of this is actively critical and often using language that openly questions the validity of gender non-conforming people's lives. As much as I want to be optimistic and hopeful, many people still view differences or someone challenging their worldview with fear and resistance rather than curiosity. An FRA LGBT survey found that 41% of trans people had been attacked or threatened with violence in the previous five years. That's two in five. And despite the unity and excitement of trans pride, there were still people shouting transphobic slurs from the side of the parade. Transness as an umbrella term is already misrepresented by many, and gender nonconformity sits within that wider term. So it's no wonder that it's even less understood and met with confusion and resistance. And all this impacts real people. The majority of violence and aggression that I see is directed towards trans women and like they are the focus of much of sort of media campaigns that's anti-trans and like they are the ones that bear the brunt of that but on the flip side of that I think the trans mass community and trans men are often completely ignored and invalidated and infantilized whereas trans men the, the the media coverage of them is like oh bless them they just they didn't know they got it wrong they were tricked into thinking that their womanhood wasn't enough mm. the more i transition the more i'm on testosterone i feel like the more i'm talked down to and disrespected and not believed and patronized and the representation we do get in movies and and on tv is often tragic and i think that's that's part of what i've there's a fear that I've carried with me in, in my transition because every time I've seen on TV like a trans masculine person or a trans man represented who transitions, they either get killed or they have a tragic ending where that their partner wants to love them but they can't anymore because they're not who they thought they were. Those are fears that I've carried with me throughout my transition that come from that kind of lack of representation. So I think that's what it changes that like we just generally have more of a voice and a bit more respect in our own personhood and, and agency. There's still a cultural narrative that views trans and gender non-conforming people as outsiders, victims and tragic figures. We need more stories with positive outcomes. So I guess the good news piece is the Equality Act. So gender reassignment is a protected characteristic in the Equality Act. So if you can you know, make a claim that you are shifting 
gender, from the gender was assigned at birth, then you should be protected in all those ways that all kind of protected characteristics around race and gender, etc. protected. The bad news for people who are non-binary particularly or gender non-conforming is that in terms of gender recognition in the UK, you can't get a non-binary certificate or a non-binary passport, although there's a lot of countries where you can. Non-binariness is not partic- is not a specifically protected characteristic either, so there's not a kind of sense that all organisations should have options to identify as non-binary or that, you know, people should use the correct pronouns and um, there should be bathrooms for people, all of that stuff. It's not so clear-cut as, like, the law is everybody gets to be the gender they are, you know? None of this changes overnight, and there is still a lot of resistance but I feel uplifted by the changes that are happening. In the same way that attitudes to sexuality have changed dramatically in the past 30 years, I'm hopeful we're going to see the same with gender nonconformity in the future. And one of the ways I think we'll get there is by examining all our own unique relationships to gender. A big part of gender nonconformity, in all forms, is about challenging gender binaries. Yet we still tend to think of gender in categories. Man and woman with non-binary floating somewhere in between. Gender is much broader than these categories. We get stuck in this idea that specifically trans people need help on their gender journey. But when we move to this idea that all people have a gender journey where it's changing over time, and actually most people come to a point in their lives where the kind of way they have been doing gender or the way the wider culture does it just doesn't fit for them anymore or somehow they kind of fall off like normativity around gender. It might be some men who go through prostate treatment for prostate cancer. Uh, It feminizes them. They experience this changes in their body and their emotions, which can be pretty disconcerting. So they could really do with help around gender. So, you know, sort of flattening it out and saying, hey, everybody has a gender journey and how do we support all of them rather than that, that binary of trans and cis of like cis people are just fine and don't need any help with this and trans people need all of this help. I thought for a long time that being gender non-conforming was being equal parts masculine and feminine. Let's think of this in colours. If we think of manness as yellow and womanness as red, it's often presumed that being non-binary or gender non-conforming is a true orange, with equal parts yellow and red mixed in. This is probably why it's taken me so long to have these thoughts and feelings about myself because that description doesn't resonate with me. Instead, I'm seeing gender as a paint palette, where every day I have the opportunity to mix a different shade. So, hi. My name is Ruby Rare. Right now, my pronouns are she, they. And I'm exploring what gender nonconformity feels like for me. I'm still me. I'm just looking at myself and the world in a more genderful frame of mind. Next time on In Touch, I'm talking to fellow survivors of sexual assault about our experiences. For so many survivors, actually, the thing that they need is to be believed. My healing process has been a lifelong journey. It takes the time it takes. Anybody who's listening that is a survivor, definitely remind yourself that it's you going through a healing process. In Touch was hosted by me, Ruby Rare. It was produced by B. Duncan with executive producer Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistants were Rory Boyle and Mars West. 
This is a Broccoli production.